Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Here's to the drink habits, the only one I got that don't get me into trouble. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, it's our 150th episode. We have to do something special. Who would be the perfect guest for us to have for this milestone? Well, I mean, Sam Harris, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But in the absence. (laughs) But instead, you get me, Jordan Peterson. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Welcome, Jordan. Jordan. Finally. Thank you. <laughs> My lobster claws reach out to you, gentlemen, and congratulations. <laughs> this is, by the way, Paul Bloom from Yale University. Thank you for having me back. We only had one pick. Tamblr and I knew as, as soon as we, we realized that we wanted a guest, there was only one answer. As soon as Lori Santos said no. Brooks and, yeah, she said no. <laughs> Brooks and Suzanne Regan. Did I get it right? Uh, Reagan. Professor. Reagan, professor of psychology at Yale University. I'm really happy to be back. And hey, happy anniversary, gentlemen. It's a, it, this is a, a, a great event. It's been a great podcast. You used to say it was your favorite thing on the internet. That's what you used to say. But. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he's honest. You know, honest. I, I, I sort of, my views were shifting. And then I listened to your uh, porn philosophical example thing, which, and that honestly was the best thing on the internet. so today we have in celebration a tightly structured episode Uh, no it's actually the opposite so one of the things that was an early inspiration for this show was pti right to some extent yeah um part of part in the interruption a sports show on espn Yes, where they just go run down a bunch of different topics and talk about them for a fairly short time. And we've been getting a lot of requests for uh, a bunch of topics. And so we thought we'd just go through these topics with Paul and get Paul's always entertaining and insightful and non-empathetic take on (laughs) these topics. And this Um, promises to be fun. We have not, we have some ideas of the topic. Some will be surprises. It's just, um, you know, exactly. and, and I, you know, for all of those waiting with bated breath, I think we're going to avoid, uh, Star Trek transporters and the prestige. Um, but I can't promise that. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. So let's, uh, let's start off with a topic that a bunch of listeners and our Reddit or subreddit, uh, 
have requested that we talk about, and they're talking about it themselves. It was that ho- uh, the hoax, that series of articles that were by former guest. Former guest. I don't know if I'd call him friend of the podcast, but former <laughs> guest uh, James Lindsay and um, Peter Bogosian. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, they and so- published- somebody else. And- and Helen Pluckrose. Yeah. And Helen Pluckrose, yes, right. Uh, they published, under her name, right, uh, a bunch of, uh, they, they got a bunch of papers published and several in peer-reviewed journals, including Hypatia. Um, I think they did it in, res- there was a lot of criticism, including ours, of their earlier hoax, which was published in uh, what appeared to be a predatory journal that would publish pretty much anything. So they this time they sent it to more more reputable, although not particularly rep, reputable journals. I guess Hypatia is the only one I had heard of. It in includes Journal field. of Poetic Therapy and uh, <laughs> Fat Studies. JPT, yeah. <laughs> so, but but Hypatia is is a, a you know a prestigious journal. It was a you know the focus of of quite a lot of controversy with uh, uh, Rebecca Tuvel's article uh, comparing uh, transgender and transracial conceptions. Um, yeah. A case where I think a lot of people felt, including me, felt Hypatia acted disgracefully by uh, you know yes. uh, failing to support an author who was under siege. But now they themselves are having yet another crisis. So let's. You tweeted something somewhat sympathetic to the to this new hoax. Um, I saw Paul. Um, I actually don't totally know what Dave thinks about this, except that he didn't really want to talk about it. But um, yeah. So what's <laughs> so? Give us your what's your opinion about it? Does it expose certain things that need to be exposed? Is it clever? Is it so? My views on the hoax changed somewhat. I, I, what I said in my tweet ultimately, and I, I had a back and forth with some people, was um, this would not happen, I think, with a journal like uh, Journal of Philosophy or Mind or one of uh, you know several really high-quality philosophy journals or theoretical journals. So it does say something about the journals that it could be hoaxed in this way. On the other hand, there have been critiques of the hoax, which I have found pretty convincing there was one by somebody on at slate do you guys remember who that was yeah daniel Daniel engber who used who used to be in charge of the explainer which i thought Um, was was very good and and actually brian earp from yale has posted some good stuff on that too and these people pointed out among other things that there was uh, no control group they didn't try to hoax other journals um and that i've heard people say that the articles they published uh, at least the one in Hypatia, weren't that bad. Now maybe right. it says maybe it says something about a journal that a bunch of people who come from another area could kind of toss something together gets published. But and again, I don't think you could do that with a high quality journal, which would demand some expertise. But you know, I'm not sure if it shows everything that the hoaxers think it shows. Right, um, and you know, it's just to add a little bit to the detail, there were they wrote 21 fake papers they took what like eight or ten months um sort of writing writing up these papers and seven were published um i believe it's seven in peer-reviewed journals yeah um and so 
so so as you say uh there's for for one most of these papers were rejected um and what what does that mean are they are those journals uh high quality or is scholarship in those journals sort of meet the standards that uh even though they are you know in in this kind of domain of whatever we want to call it um this this brand of humanities does it say anything about the quality of the field that most most papers got rejected um i don't know and that and again there's no control group one of the things that strikes me as as you paul and engber point out like some of these are actually not you know the the dog rape paper where they actually make up data would be kind of an interesting paper to write i mean you can you pepper it with language that sounds absurd but it it it's they faked data yeah right and one of the things that i find not that distressing is if you fake data and use the language of a field, you can get a paper published. Now, let's not forget Diedrich Stoppel, <laughs> who faked data and used the language of our field and did it disingenuously in the sense that he was trying to actually <clears throat> pass it off as real scientific, uh, right, like a real scientific <laughs> contribution. Is, is that disingenuous compared to what they were doing? <laughs> I mean, it's a different. So yeah, it's a different kind of motivation. I don't know what, you know. I I, w- I was thinking if I were Dietrich Stoppel and I got caught, I would say, "Ha ha! I've been hoaxing the field. I have exposed the this the underbelly of, of the field of social psychology." My um, I I don't think that this said much more than the conceptual penis hoax. I mean, they put a lot of work into writing up papers that had the language of a field in some cases. The literature, Almost they making, knew the literature. Yeah, yeah. They, they like they went to great lengths to 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 make points that other people have made, and I, you know, I just would like to know what what if you did this in another field? I think some fields would be more robust, as Paul says, like some maybe some analytic philosophy. I think at the end of the day, the the fields that they're mocking don't require hoaxes. I mean, you read you read the actual papers, and there is very little to distinguish the hoax papers from the real papers. And so, if you want to criticize, all you have to do is point your finger at the papers that have been published. I don't, so I don't know what it's saying. And the fi- the final thing is like this: this doesn't go. You know, they might be right or wrong about the quality of these articles, but it leaves a bad taste in my mouth that they do this with such delight, and that they've yeah. spent this much time to try to take down people. Yeah, um, that's that's my that's exactly my first reaction. Like you would have to have a much higher opinion of, you know, your average journal than I do to be surprised <laughs> that you could right. publish some things that you didn't mean, you know, by doing due diligence. And like, I mean, that doesn't that part doesn't surprise me at all. What does surprise me is that someone would devote years of their lives trying to expose something about a field that they think have has no value. I mean, this is what I said this to James Lindsay, and I say it again here. Like, if you don't think it has value, then why are you have you spent the last five years obsessing over it? 
Why wouldn't you work on, like, we're given a limited amount of time on this earth. Why wouldn't you work on something that you do think has value rather than trying to expose this little field somewhere that's not doing anything through some elaborate hoax? And yeah, the delight that they take in it, this that sort of smug kind of we got you is just, I mean, the, a lot of it speaks to what's what's bad about the way people are interacting these days, but that's part of it. The way that people on the left responded to it as if it didn't say even a single thing about, you know, the quality of some of these journals. Um, And as one of the writers who wrote about it said, everyone is playing their assigned roles. That's how it felt. You know, like the right wing was celebrating it, triumphing it. And that and that cadre of like Sam Harris and Steven Pinker and my stepmother and, you know, they're all. The, like this is great you know and then the the left you know they're attacking Lindsay and uh pluck rose and and they're defending the the quality of the papers which was i guess the one kind of irony of the the, the, the whole thing but i just don't understand the mindset of somebody that would do that like that just seems, it seems non-virtuous to me. so so just a couple of points very quickly one is i I agree and and in fact they've also they added they acted in bad faith in a lot of this uh they quoted reviews of papers that got rejected that simply said kind things about the papers and then went aha yeah but as the and some of the one of the reviewers when they said yeah i I begin my reviews by saying something nice about the papers what you're supposed to do (laughs) right that's just basic civility sucker yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) um and i actually think I, i think the journals are being too quick to say, oh, it's this right-wing hoax. We don't need to be concerned about it. I think the fact that some of these papers got in should be a matter of some concern for the for the journals. And, and it, like you say, everybody's playing their assigned role. But most of all, what I want to do is I want to assign blame to why they did all this. And the blame clearly lies with the two of you. I mean, <laughs> I mean because, you, because I listen to the podcast. You, everybody should go back and listen to how uh, Dave and Tamil are treated a James Lindsay and his hoax, his initial hoax, and plainly that was so traumatizing that he left and he devoted the entire time so he could he could show you guys that this that he can make it work. So when, you know, when blame I gets mean, handed out, I just gotta mention you too. You know, I I will accept causal responsibility, not, pr- not proudly, moral responsibility, pr- pr- proudly in the sense that you know we are we are two very humble gentlemen, um, as as you all know. In this case, I think we were one of the early ones to to point out sort of that the that the hoax didn't say what it said. We weren't the first, yeah. but but I'm I'm not. I don't regret having James Lindsay on, and I and if it motivated him to do this, then then so <laughs> so be it. <laughs> As um, one of my colleagues said, their next hoax <laughs> should be publishing a, a, a paper they believe in in a good journal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's one that we haven't we haven't seen. I view James <laughs> James Lindsay as like a train, and he's on a troll, he's on a track, and then he comes to you, and you guys divert him, <laughs> and instead of plunging into one journal, he plunges into seven. <laughs> oh, very, I got to work this out. Well, what, what do you think drives them to do this? Like, it's just a mindset that I can't get into. Like, what? Like, why would you? Like, eighty percent of fields are ridiculous. Like, and journals are completely ridiculous. Like, why would you want to expose? Pick one of them and try to do this high publicity stunt. So, 
I mean, in their defense, I was talking to a friend of mine who's conservative, and he didn't say I could quote him, so I won't t- say who it is. But he, he said to me, the problem is with, with academics like me um, that there's a lot of really bad stuff being done at universities. And people like me don't do anything about it. We just We just roll our eyes and let that stuff go forward. And his view is that a lot of the stuff in journals, like the grievance studies, is, is that kind of bad stuff. I actually have a view that some of it is, some of it isn't. But in any case, you could say that, uh, that if it turns out this stuff is intellectually corrosive and really bad, it's a good thing to, to try to uh, uh, call attention to it and reveal its flaws and make people do better work. This is the best spin I could think of. The, the hoaxers, they're like people trying to rid the academy of creationists or white supremacists to say, look, look at how bad this stuff is. Yeah, but but uh, you know sometimes all you have to do is point out how bad something is, right? So when I was young, <clears throat> I went and saw um, Richard Dawkins give a talk on creationism, and this you know this was even before he was that cantankerous, but he simply used creationist literature, yeah, uh, and and pointed that out, and and this is a case where you know you know what I uh, it's akin to maybe is is a critique of the art world where you can expose the sort of weird emperor has no clothes acceptance of shit art by creating shit art. And in some ways, maybe exit through the gift shop is, is the kind of thing that maybe they were going for where, where at least one reading of that documentary is that they created a person hyped that person and had him put, you know, ha- have right. very, very mediocre art shown in a high in a high visibility venue, and everybody just bought it. Yeah, uh, and but I, I don't know the, the the disanalogy there. I think that's like what they want to see themselves at is is that these journals are not high powered journals. These people who are publishing in them aren't like the the toast of the the L A modern art scene. And so, right. like, it's it's punching down in a. It seems like now I know that. No, that that's a good point. The feeling of punching down does seem right. I mean, yeah. why pick on you know journal of poetic therapy or you know right? If, if you could pull this hoax off on science or nature, well, that becomes a lot right. more interesting. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, and I think the answer is, you know, why, why do they do this? Is they're very motivated to, to to vocally disagree with some of the views that people in these fields have, and those views themselves are substantive. You know, the views about say uh, gender equality, mm-hmm. uh, they may not be right, but they are views that you could argue about. I think, like you could actually write a paper saying, "I think this field is wrong in the way that they treat uh, gender studies." And and make and maybe Tamla is kind of what you're saying. You could make a positive claim about this. The spirit with which they did this was, and we talked to James about this. The the spirit of mockery, and you know, I'm not sure where I land on whether mockery is useful or not. Um, but this it, this left a bad taste in my mouth. I don't know. This didn't change minds. Also, it's like no, I, like no. this is this made everybody just feel more strongly about what they already believed. Right, right? Was no, nobody was surprised by this, right? In the yeah. way that you might be surprised about the art world being exposed. 
Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's probably just because we don't know the art world that well. <laughs> you know, like. All right. Let's move on. Okay. Yes. Sex robots. Should we go on to that one? That was. Uh, <sighs> so there was a. <laughs> it's a good why, do I, why do I have to have an opinion on everything, <laughs> Paul? Because I'm torn about this, so I need to know. Like you're going to decide it both for yourself and for me. Um, so there was a the the reason we got a lot of listeners tweeting at us about this, emailing us, is because Houston was the intended site for the first American. Um, si- sex robot brothel that's what they called it really it was a place where you could go and test out your sex robot rent a little room with them pay by the hour i don't know how it worked who was gonna work (laughs) and then if you decided that you liked that sex robot you could buy the sex robot huh I, I did a tiny bit of research into this because uh, I know uh, Dave was saying, in what sense are they robots? They look like dolls. <laughs> yeah, that's what I wanted. That's This is the interesting question to me, which yeah. we'll get to in a second. Yeah. Well, the, there's there's some that are just dolls, but some of them are warm and some of them make noise, have sounds. It's still, now, a, still a warm doll with a string in the back. Right. <laughs> Well, I can't tell you any more about them. Um, my research stalled at that point. I just went out like I do kind of impulse purchase. But um, <laughs> the, the uh, but but so they were going to open this in Houston and the mayor was against it. I great mayor Sylvester Turner said, no, this this is not the kind of business we want in Houston. And then the city council met in a kind of, emer- I don't know, some sort of emergency session to <laughs> pass a law that would uh, make whatever they wanted to do illegal, um, at least for now. They've blocked it. I don't know if they've, but they've so blocked it. It's like a moratorium. It's like a moratorium. And what they were saying was, look, I don't care what people do in their own homes, but we don't want people going to have sex in a shop with a doll. Like that's not a good look for Houston. We're not sin city. You know, this isn't, uh, they actually said that sin city, like the mayor said sin city, which, which is, is an interesting turn of phrase for what, what arguably is masturbation. Right. Yeah. I, but masturbation like on public grounds, Right. Like, so that's the thing that 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 the council said that they were against is, look, go crazy with your sex robot or whatever you want in your house. But you don't get to come into a public place and do that. (laughs) Um, And I don't know, like, so I, I, I took it that their their reaction. So there was a petition that said this will lead to sex more sex trafficking and more prostitution and that's bullshit right there's no study that suggests that having sex with a robot doll or a doll is going to make you more likely to to engage in sex trafficking or less likely there's just no Well let's turn it to let's turn it to, over to Paul because actually Paul you you are on record with Sam Harrison in New York Times column about um Westworld arguing something like it's wrong to be uh, sadistic to human-like machines. Right. Because... So I got to say, yeah. first, based on Tamler's description, 
um, I'm a, I have enough of a libertarian instinct to think that it's none of the city's damn business whether people, somebody sets up a business where men go and masturbate in little rooms next to dolls or very next or to women. dolls. Or women. Or, or women. I guess I actually thought, I, I was sort of a mental image of it being men, but of course it could be women too. Don't they have, you know, do they have better things to do than worry about this? Uh, so Sam and I wrote something about, about Westworld as a starting point. It was actually based on, on when I, I went on this podcast because you guys were no longer having me on. And I went on this podcast. We talked about <laughs> Westworld. And, um, and then we, we turned this into an article. And what we argued is that in, in a case where there's real robots, uh, like indistinguishable from people, there are considerable moral hazards. And one moral hazard is that they might be conscious. And if they're conscious, you should not harm them, enslave them, torture them, rape them, and so on for obvious reasons. It's just, it's, it's, as, it's as bad as if it were a, a, a human. So, um, but then more, somewhat more, uh, more substantially, more interestingly, we argue that if you can't tell the difference, even if it's not conscious, there are real moral risks to taking somebody who see it was indistinguishable from a person and assaulting them. And, and I say that with some hesitancy because I'm not one of these people who think that video games, violent video games, violent simulations have bad effects. I think the evidence is that they have no long-lasting bad effects at all. They don't make us being shooting people in a video game does not make you shoot people in the real world. But my thought is if you, if you could have somebody and, and they, they interact with a robot that's a that it just seems to be a person. The only reason they don't know it's a person is because somebody told them. And they torture the robot, they kill the robot, they rape the robot. It just, my strong intuition is that this would have serious effects for how uh, they deal with people. So in some way, well, you know, a, Sam and I make the it... Kant, exactly. It's the Kant, it's, it's, it's the Kant point of view, yeah. which is, Kant says roughly, you know, it, there's nothing wrong in its own sake with harming animals, but it will affect how you treat people. Yeah. So do, why why are people assuming that you're going to torture the the sex robot rather than just have sex with it? Like like the if it's programmed to just give loving consensual sex. Like why yeah, so is is the idea that people will just naturally go to to the rape place because they know it's a robot or so in the article Sam and I wrote, we just talked about the case of being cruel to robots. We didn't make any yeah. claims about what proportion of people would be cruel to robots. I guess, though, though take your idea of, of, you know, go with your example a bit. Suppose you create a robot that's much smarter than your average person and, and much more perceptive and, and, and verbal and contemplative and so on. You program within that robot an abiding desire to have sex with any paying customer. It's not obvious that that's consent. Imagine if you were genetically engineer a person with that abiding right, we, desire. Is that yeah, consent? We, so, so to uh, but, Paul, but, it's, but we're assuming it's Paul, not conscious, right? Like, if we're you assume assuming it's, that it's not, if you yeah. assume it's not conscious, then then consent doesn't matter at all. It doesn't. Oh, I see. Yeah, it would be the inaction of consent. So, right, because I thought what you were talking about right. the torture that it's still wrong was yes. under the assumption that it's not conscious. So right. the fact that sort it's of. not consensual isn't really an issue. Right? No, no, I, 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 I think that that's right. If if you had to have hyper, if you had to have realistic robots and they're not conscious, 
um, I think there's reasons to say you could have consensual, as it were, sex with them, but you cannot assault them. And uh, Paul and I, I, like, I think we had a back and forth on Twitter just a little bit because I was saying if you're going to have robot slaves, wouldn't it be much better to program them to enjoy the work? Like if you can do that, if you can actually program a hyper-realistic robot that will do all of the, you know, widget making or whatever, um, wouldn't it be great to have them derive happiness? But if you're in, uh, but if they're deriving happiness, if they're enjoying things, then they're conscious, and then and then they are slaves. They are they. You you cannot. You should not be in a position to force them to do things. Yeah. Well, I mean, it turns on whether programming is forcing it. So, uh-huh. so you know, presumably we all have some degree of programming in the sense that our brains are computer-like and that they process information and they do all that stuff. And there's no, you know, we're conscious, but all of the things we do are for what you might call reasons or what you might call causes. And um, so long as I feel like I freely, agentically chose an option, it, you know, and I derive pleasure from it. I really don't care whether the universe programmed it into me. So let me ask you the question I asked Tamara then. So you have these conscious robots and you're saying you get programmed yeah. in the desire to enjoy being subservient. Is that different for you than if you genetically engineered people with an equivalent desire? Uh, no. I mean, you know, not to get all nerdy, but there is a the Star Trek series Deep Space Nine. I knew this. Was <laughs> <crazy>. <laughs> I just, I fucking was, knew it. It was like, a long no time. way. This wasn't okay. You know, like, we, we yeah, talked about know, this yesterday. We knew we were coming. Here. You, you know, this is you about like me. sex dolls in Houston, and all of a sudden we're on Deep Space Nine. I just you know, first like, of all, first of all, first of all, I like how how Tamler centric you made this, as if our listeners cared that it was Houston. <laughs> they did care. They, that we it was talk Houston. about we talk about robots and consent and all this stuff like a lot before. Like one person pointed out that it was in Houston, and you're yeah, like, like, because it's Houston. A bunch um, of people pointed out that it was. Houston. <laughs> There's a subreddit feed that says, given that this is Houston. Yeah, no, they're right that you might care more because it's Houston, but but I think we would be talking about it anyway. Um, I could be there. There, right <laughs> there <laughs> could be fucking a doll right now. <laughs> I think you would be masturbating into the doll, but we'll get to that. Uh, but I think the, so. There's a species That's a good point. that is. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think there's so, conceptual analysis. <laughs> yeah, there's a species that's been programmed to want to fight for the honor of the kingdom, right? And that's all they're programmed to do. Um, they, and in fact, if you prevent them from dying in, in sort of honorable battle, they are very, very upset. And it is clear from this science fiction story that the, the species that, uh, engineered them genetically made them desire this. Mm -hmm. I, I struggle to see why it is a bad thing to genetically engineer something that feels the same agency upon deciding right no not, nothing compulsory nothing undesired they they feel what we feel when they calculate what they want to do so they say you know chocolate vanilla chocolate vanilla i really really like chocolate what does it matter if they were programmed like at the end of the day not to pull sam harris we, aren't we all this the, you know <laughs> you're right subjectively it's the same so subjectively i'm torn by desires for say you know, food when I'm hungry and drink when I'm thirsty and I didn't choose those and they seem, and all sorts of desires and so on. 
But right. I think somebody's richer, has a richer life, if they haven't been given the additional desire to be enslaved than if they have. So you know what would be really wrong is programming the uh, the sex robots to not want it. Yeah. Yet being unable. So, so I, I don't remember if we mentioned this before, but what seems really fucked up is if you say bought a a sex robot and and really we're talking about sex dolls that might have you know some basic things programmed into its speed you know it's like Alexa with a body um, and you had sex with it and you programmed it to say no stop please no that that seems like I can't shake the intuition that that's fucked up right but that's like, fucked up because what does it say about you exactly you yeah. exactly that yeah no that's where i think the action is so so i so like i the, my intuition is is pretty strong that that that, that is that you are a, a bad person and that's a, in essence what westworld is doing um by you know creating human-like creatures that don't want to die yeah but so if right. we can go back to the sex robot brothel thing in houston yeah. Isn't that just what Houston is saying that we don't want on our land to have a business that's going to uh, corrupt the character of our citizens? And we have a right to do that as a city. Um, so, so it turns on, I think, whether or not these things, you know, like like Paul and Sam argued in, in their article the hyper realistic nature of these things is is what i think might corrupt your character cuz in reality these are like really just dolls that have some some very very basic you know responsiveness and that's what i think is ludicrous to to prevent people from doing that and so so i i think good thought experiments are what really what constitutes a robot like if you <laughs> tamler and i had a vacuum <laughs> no no it was Joel and i we we're, were saying like if you <laughs> If you masturbate with your Roomba, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I hate my Roomba. Like, I, I would have angry sex with Roomba. I, I, I'm not even like, I don't like angry. Like, that's not a thing that appeals to me at all, but that's how it would be with the Roomba. But that's how we just end up. <laughs> yeah. Does Houston have strip clubs? Yes. I, I imagine it does. Like, we're like very well regarded ones. NBA players like look forward to coming to the Rockets. It sounds, to, it sounds like one of yeah. your pantheon extras where you discuss the the, the, the strip club. But but I guess I guess, I guess my point is in what world is you know is lap are, are lap dances fine? Yeah. But but yeah, yeah, but yeah. somebody masturbating into a plastic doll that that, that <laughs> right. so, you know such as it, it it really is I guess a status quo bias. It is, right. it, it, and I think, or a status bias. Like the people who go to the Houston strip right. clubs are really rich, and the people who would go to this robot—it's seedy and kind of pathetic. It, it brings back the sort of going into a video store and buying porn, or going into one of those movie theaters in yeah. the seventies in New York and jerking off in the theater. It's like. That's the thing I think that they don't want. They're to, they don't mind like high class call girls in the city or high class like strip clubs. That... Yeah, actually, what is the legal status of those? Like, if you you know some some adult video stores, for instance, used to have these little booths where you could go watch a video. This was obviously before the widespread availability of of 
internet <laughs> porn, but they would have these little rooms that you would go into. Um, in San Francisco, I remember when I was in college, there was one of these in, but you would go, you would go in and you would um, watch videos. And really there was, what I felt bad for was the guy who has to mop up at the end of the day. Oh, like it was very, yeah. very clear that this was going on. Yeah. That's the thing that they don't want in the same way that when they cleaned up Times Square, I don't think it was an ethics thing as much as this isn't what we want the mid, like the middle of New York to be known for, you right? Know? You don't want like all of a sudden a robot sex district, <laughs> like where everybody is going. How far away do you think we are in time till we get to a point where people will purchase sex dolls, sex robot dolls that are, you know, more than those sort of comical plastic yeah. or blow up things, but but you know, to some extent, indistinguishable from a person. So, so this is funny because I was interviewed on the local NPR about this, and they asked me that too. Like, how far do you, how far until until something like this is just it's not a big deal yeah. to open one of these things up, and they're better. Um, and I was thinking somewhere between ten and twenty years. That sounds right. It'll come with self self driving to- cars. You get in your self driving car, and I'll <laughs> yeah. take you there. I mean, I think we'll get. I think we'll get there before we get real sort of real AI, like yeah. strong AI, as they used to call it. Um, yeah, we need a futurist, like you know. Hopefully, because I, like I don't want to be like enslaved by some yeah. like AI uh, <laughs> master before I can have sex with like you know, some awesome <laughs> sex you'll, robot. You'll you'll be the the you'll be the worker <laughs> exactly. in the brothel. Should, um, should, should we worry that when real AI comes on the scene, it'll get really pissed off at us for everything we've done? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. That's why I try to be in, in, in anything digital. I try to be very kind yeah. to, to robots. Yeah. And I, for um, one, welcome our <laughs> in Soviet Russia. <laughs> robot fucks you. Who says you need to plan ahead to have a good conversation? <laughs> Is there any way we can merge the hoax? Like maybe like you could design a a sex robot that would get accepted in the sex robot brothel that <laughs> actually you designed it. Like I, it, I was thinking that not, I was I was thinking that the the designer would be like, ha ha, I fooled you guys into jerking off into a doll by calling it a robot sex brothel. So uh, should we very quickly talk about whether it's masturbating or sex to have sex with one of these uh, rudimentary? Robots. I've always had a problem with the classic sort of John Height uh, scenarios <clears throat> that attempt to point to sort of moral dumbfounding. One of one of the examples that he uses is that you have sex into a dead chicken, yeah. or you have sex with the the carcass of a dead chicken. And I yeah. always thought the calling it sex was a weird thing. Yeah, huh. this, is, this is clearly jerking off. I mean, uh, a flashlight isn't sex. I once tried to argue with a bunch of people, and I did not convince anybody, that uh, <laughs> pornographic actors um, in pornographic films are not actually having sex. They're just acting Ooh. as if they're having sex. Oh, that's... And, 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 and this, this is, in fact, why laws on prostitution, I, right. under one rule, don't, don't block the creation of pornographic films. Because even though these people are paid, they're not paid to have sex. They're paid to act right. as if they're having sex. Oh, that's super that, interesting. That's pretty deep, isn't it? I mean, talk, talk about letter of the law. Yeah. Um, but now, wait a minute. This sounds like something that 
is really a family <laughs> resemblance kind of thing, not something. It, it may, it, it may well be. Are you saying there's no necessary and condi- <laughs> sufficient conditions for calling something sex? Yeah. So one of the questions that that you might ask is, what's cheating? I take it that most people would say that masturbating to pornography is not cheating. It might be some sort of breach of trust, but it's not infidelity. Russ, I, I Russ Doubtit, yeah. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, Russ Doubtit, who writes for New York Times, yeah. a conservative, wrote an article once that was widely mocked, and I thought it was actually very interesting, where he argued pornography was cheating. Oh, yeah. It was, you know, I, plainly it's a certain sort of cheating, less intense than with a, a person, but, but it's still, con- it has the major important features of cheating, he argued. Huh. Yeah, my intuition is wow. that it is not cheating. It might be an infraction. Yeah. If two people say, "Let you know, let's watch porn together," for instance, it's 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 not a threesome <laughs> as much <laughs> as you would want, as much as you would love it. You can't. That doesn't that doesn't count. That's a that's a However, great style like, of argument. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> it gets more interesting when you have a live person on the other line, like in these these chats, yes. right? Yes. And and there it's like I find I struggle with my intuition because if you had a pre-recorded version of somebody on the other end doing all and saying all of those same things, it would feel like much less cheating than somebody who is actually responding to you contingently over even though they're paid. That's right. Yeah, that's right. There's something about the interaction with another human being that makes it feel like it moves from not not cheating, maybe some other infraction, to actually infidelity. And certainly if you if it wasn't paid, but it was a relationship. But the, For sure, the two right. people never had any yeah. physical contact. They they engaged in sex yeah. over the, the phone or, or or the FaceTime. It definitely right. would count as some sort of cheating. <laughs> people would be right <laughs> to be pissed. I yeah. have the intuition that being with a prostitute though is much less obviously cheating than being with a, like another woman another woman that you're not paying because there's an intuition yeah. of almost objectification or a commercial transaction yeah exactly somewhere between por- watching porn and actually having an affair yeah i mean i think that m- many people would say like you're already strongly on the side of cheating at that point uh, and now, now that we've all, you know, now that we agree that this is all some sort of infidelity, that it would be worse to have an actual, to actually interact with somebody and convince them to have sex with you seems indicative of some sort of emotional relationship in a way that paid sex does not. And yeah. so it feels more like a breach um, in the same way that having an intimate emotional relationship with somebody with no physical contact might be a breach. That seems right. But pornography, just to be clear, pornography is not cheating, right? <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're good. You're okay. I'm good. It, it is what your partner says it is. Ross, I'm sorry. So that, does that mean Ross doubt that nobody knows how to pronounce his name? I don't think there's a single person in America that knows how to pronounce his name, but is he sort of tacitly saying that he's never watched porn? Like, does he not? know no. what's out there no i for, I, I read the article a long time ago i didn't i didn't prepare for this podcast by reading <laughs> it uh didn't know we'd end up here but um but he just talked about he just you know raised the view the, the same questions we're asking now if it's if you're it, you know if, if you're talking to somebody on the phone if you're w- what are the boundaries and um right and and i think he just made the point that that to say oh unless it's sort of actual intercourse with another person it's fine 
seems uh, doesn't seem psychologically or morally realistic. Yeah. I mean, we have the intuition that dreaming about having sex with another person is not cheating. Yes, but that's because it's right. involuntary. It it might be involuntary in the local sense. Oh, I see. But <laughs> you go. might actually spend your days fantasizing about somebody enough that they make it into your dream. <laughs> well, if you do it with the intention of getting them in your dream, then... It's not only it's not only infidelity; it's a form of sexual harassment. Dream, dreams are nature's robot brothels. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say, by the way, that whatever his porn viewing habits are, I really like Ross Death. That he's one of the few columnists just on either side that I read uh, religiously, to uh, <laughs> so to speak. Like, yes, so to speak. Yeah. I, you know, this actually seems like a good bridge to perverse desires, which you uh, are oh. interested in, Paul. I've just been um, thinking about it over the last little while, in part because I had a conversation uh, in Kentucky with a philosopher, Brian Keeley, and he told me oh, about yeah, I know, right. the he's, views. He's, a great, he's awesome. He was awesome. And he was telling me the views of Paul Feyerabend. I may not be the, the, the radical philosopher of science. Am I pronouncing yeah. his name right? Firebend. Mm, he's he's not yeah, Fire Band or something. I don't know. Anyway, um he uh, apparently is at one point, and this may not be true, but it's an interesting idea, said he felt that it's very important for people to retain their freedom. And even if you get like really good arguments for a position, it could be the expression of freedom to reject that position. And, you know, so, so there's a hundred arguments in favor of uh, that global warming exists, but I'm going to assert my freedom and say to hell with you, it doesn't. I'm going to vote for Trump. I'm going to smoke that cigarette. And if you think about specific examples, it's kind of crazy. You know, you should, you, should try to, you should try to believe stuff which is true. Assert your freedom and, and, and act so that in ways which are, which are rational. But I've liked the idea that often... Psychologists often describe perverse actions as kind of a glitch in the system. Like you, you say to yourself, I'm really not going to... It's like the white bear studies of Dan Wagner where you try to focus on... If you're told not to think of white bears, you'll think of them. If you're told not to think of racial stereotypes, they'll come to mind. And so psychologists like Wagner think of perverse actions as sort of a glitch in the system where things that you don't... What you want not to do spill out. But I've gotten really interested in what you call it existential perversity, where you say to yourself, um, I don't want to, I feel constrained to do that which is rational and smart, and I'm going to rebel. And so yeah. I think that this has something to do with the terrible twos, with adolescent rebellion, with midlife crisis. And I think in, in small doses, it could be fine and interesting. So this is the underground man, right? Like the whole note yeah. from underground is a guy explicitly doing this, yes. explicitly going against, right? And I think that's really interesting. And he even says too, right, that it's, I'm doing this to assert my freedom because it's at a time where that deterministic world is is gaining, you know, prominence, Um and so he, so he does these perverse things, you know, at least this is what he says. Yes. Uh, but I, I agree, though, that this is, that there is something good about it and that it speaks to a certain need or deficit that we have. Uh, so I read your, like a draft of something you wrote yeah. about this, and it speaks to something that's lacking in our lives 
when we act that's that that accounts at least in part for the appeal of some of doing some of these things that are clearly bad for us like and i think that is that we feel like our lives are too regimented that there's no adventure like it's like that there's no that there's not enough unknown there's not enough freedom yeah i mean freedom i guess and so like these desires are our way of lashing out against that sometimes yeah i mean if i always do what makes sense What's ra- if we believe what's rational and do what makes sense, what use am I? What use is my consciousness? <laughs> I could just, you know. So <laughs> you're just an algorithm. You're just running out the algorithm. I, I unfortunately didn't um, have time to, to read what you sent. You had, plenty of, you had plenty of time. <laughs> it wasn't that long. I, I, <laughs> no, took like I two literally minutes went from meeting to meeting to meeting straight to recording. So I didn't even see the email. Oh, okay. Like I'm in the dark. But with so without reading, let me engage with this in a way that that maybe disagrees with you guys. I think that that epistemology, which is you know one of the domains that that you were using as example, um, I've pondered this before. Like rationality dictates that you acquire a certain set of beliefs it, often, right? So so um, you want to believe what's true, and the method by which you acquire these beliefs. You hope it's a reliable one, and if you don't pay attention to those and come up with the wrong answer, it's you know it's it, you are you're just wrong. Yeah, <laughs> and and I think that there's an interesting difference between epistemology and just say action in other domains. Where epistemology, it doesn't upset me that I have zero freedom. That is, it is constrained in a way that I. I I would want it to be constrained. I I don't feel I don't feel like my freedom is being impinged upon by the constraints that rationality gives me. Um, now, if it were like you know boiling down to things like uh, what do I want to do today with my free time? Of course, right? Like I want yeah. like you know fuck fuck your constraints, but. But I, I just don't feel like it's it's you're just being stupid to yeah. to flip you know to throw your middle finger at 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 something that is logical. Um, but it's but a I weird think thing. The, Paul, the big parts of Paul's examples aren't I'm going to believe something I don't think is true. It's more that I'm going to do something that's bad for me, right? Yeah, yeah. But but I'm also thinking about the belief case and just on the fly. I think consider acts of faith, religious faith. Often I think people mm-hmm. see cases where there really isn't an answer. And I think they take some pleasure in fixing on a belief that is unsupported. And I think that's a different case than, you know, I I refuse to believe that uh, I refuse to believe in climate change or whatever. Um, where I sort of doggedly turn away from the facts, but instead a case where there just aren't enough guiding facts. And so you, you take advantage of the freedom to believe and you, you kind of settle on something. Right. I'm I'm tepid about this because it it, it isn't really the way I go, but I, I, I trying to get some sympathy for that way of thinking. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, the Kierkegaard, right. Leap of faith is, is that, I mean, I, I, I wonder Having having been raised in in a religion that is concerned with defending faith rationally, you know it's it's not often that you run into somebody who just is willing to admit that there is no rational basis for the belief, um, but rather they try to you know yeah. try to give you sort of whatever arguments that are internal to to the Bible or something. But 
I feel like in the absence of reason to believe one thing or another, it is it's not perverse. Like if it truly oh, is that you have that you have no ability to distinguish a false claim from a true claim, then sure, like by all means, you know, pick your pick pick whatever you want. But what else could you do? Well, you could not believe at all. You you could just keep uh you you could not take any leap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I I think yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, um, that's right because like, atheism like, isn't faith. That's there, there's <laughs> yeah. there's it's perfectly rational if you don't have any reason to believe not to believe. Even if there's no reason, you know, even if there's no evidence to the contrary of a belief, just plucking one out at random and saying, I'm going to believe in this, and you know, because there's no reason against it, seems to be a mildly perverse act. It doesn't rise to the full perversity of, you know, sitting in a voting booth as a committed Democrat and liberal and then just saying, what the hell? <laughs> right. I'm going to vote for Trump. God, <laughs> God damn, I could. Nothing's going to stop me. That's the thing that I think is. Like uh, the belief one is less convincing to me, although I I like it as a way of trying to justify certain uh, faith based beliefs. But it's the actions that I think is the. Uh, oh yeah, like you like to ride your bicycle without a helmet on. No, but like that's, that kind of thing. That's actually rational and <laughs> right. virtuous. And, but if Tamler uh, believed it was more I'm dangerous, not tr- I'm not. I don't. For it to be for it to be perverse, you have to believe that riding without a helmet is mo- more dangerous, and the pleasure you get isn't worth it, really. But then doing it anyway. Well, no, I just have to be against the Syrian refugee ban. <laughs> Wait, what? what? <laughs> I think if you wear a helmet, you are logically committed to supporting the Syrian refugee ban because you're that concerned about safety that you think that you have to, like, in all cases, just optimize the chances that you won't die by, like, the tiniest, most negligible amount. So that's, I'm against the Syrian. I think we should accept more Syrian refugees, so I will wear a helmet. I mean, I won't wear a helmet. You, you're a formidable debater. <laughs> He's giving us an example of Tev, like flouting rationality as as we speak. No, but like I, so the part that's in that I thought was interesting is that this idea of rat being controlled rationally is not that we actually feel bound by the laws of reason in in a strict sense, but that we feel entrapped by always doing what's good for like what's good for us or what's sensible or yeah. what's smart and there is something just inherently intrinsically appealing about just going against that for just like i don't give a fuck just for the hell of it kind of there's which we wouldn't have if we lived different kinds of lives like yes. then like being sensible would seem kind of awesome and sexy there's a wonderful book uh, which I, I i talk about in my piece by uh it's written by gretchen rubin and i forget what the f- collaboration with a photographer whose last name is hoy and um and it's called profane waste and it's a series of photographs of people destroying stuff for no reason at all setting fire <laughs> setting fire to money pouring champagne down the bathtub yeah. um and it's kind of exhilarating to look at these photographs and, and <laughs> it's, it's like i mean in some way I, you give an example of banksy you know having his picture yeah. shredded upon sale but i'm not sure that counts as a real perverse act because everybody made a lot of money off of it yeah yeah, yeah exactly that it, 
it seems perverse in a sort of meta sense. Yes, exactly. Like, look at, look at my perverse <laughs> act. Now pay me. <laughs> yeah. There's a great example from this philosopher, Sussman. He has an article, For Badness Sake, that also got me thinking about this. And he talks about these beautiful icicles you see. And sometimes it's just so much fun to smash them. <laughs> uh, this is, uh, there were, you know, there's a reason there's a Shiva, the destroyer god uh where it might be actually some some deep delight in in bringing chaos to order you think we could move this part to the front to put the porn stuff the, the sex robot <laughs> uh, yeah, stuff at the yeah, end we might actually be able to so okay can we take a break i i my bladder wants yeah. me to take a break i'm kind of worried about the sex robot thing <laughs> and then but the perversity yeah, discussion was I at think, such a high level dostoevsky Kierkegaard, shiva yeah. the destroyer we <laughs> seem so smart there's this great story, this is going to be a much high level, of this Oxford Don who's on this rowboat sunbathing in a nude. And all of a sudden, this troop of students comes by and he takes his hat and he puts it on his face. Because you'd think he would cover up his groin. Yeah, that's smart. That's smart. You see, it's, it's, it's smart. It's, <laughs> we'll save this for the, the actual Take me a thing. second. I, I didn't know you were t- telling a joke. So. No, it's not yeah. a joke. It's supposed to be a it's, true it's, story. It's a parable. It's a humorous anecdote. It's, 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 it's a message uh, for our times. <laughs> it's a metaphor. It's a call to arms. It's a shih tzu. It's a shih tzu. It's a Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, at this point, we'd like to thank everybody um, for all your support, people who write us, people who support us. Um, if you would like to get a hold of us, email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet to us at verybadwizards, at peas, at Tamler. You can join the discussions, the lively discussions on facebook.com slash verybadwizards or reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards for that subreddit. Um, get some in-depth discussion with other listeners, always smart. And you can follow us on Instagram as well at the Very Bad Wizards account. Uh, you can support us in more tangible ways by going to our verybadwizards.com slash support page. There you will find the various ways in which you can support us. You can give us a one-time PayPal donation. You can shop on Amazon, which is always great, through our link. 
And you can go to our Patreon page. Thank you so much to all those people who sign up for even the smallest of regular contributions. We uh, appreciate you showing appreciation. Thank you all um, for all your support. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you. For our last topic, or maybe our last topic, given that the Red Sox game is on right now. Uh, Maybe (laughs) ever, yeah, after this episode. I don't know. I thought it would be we we did we've started this over six years ago. This is our hundred and fiftieth episode, and podcasts themselves have undergone quite a transformation. Also in academia, I think what we were doing when we started this was re- regarded with mockery by a lot of people, especially Sean Nichols, but um, <laughs> who still mocks it actually. But yeah, and, and now I think podcasts have become a more respected and also i think somewhat beloved by a lot of people um it was more of a niche thing you you were one of the few people i knew who were really into podcasts when i was trying to think about this idea you know of doing this i thought we'd talk about what's what makes what makes podcasts a good way of discussing ideas in the media in a way that doesn't seem as poisoned by this kind of toxic polarization that we see in a lot of other venues. There does seem like something about podcasts that allow people to really wrestle with things in a more in a more complex and nuanced way. So, well, let me ask you guys just, just as, a, as a way to get into that. Uh, you've been doing this for a while, and like you say, the landscape has changed, but also you have changed. So... You know, <laughs> this is such a, a, a an NPR question, <laughs> but what <laughs> what have you learned? What have you learned over the last? I'm sorry, <laughs> I just feel like so awful saying that. But, but I'm actually curious. Like, <laughs> no, if you if you, question, if you yeah. go to your past selves and you, you listen to you know what do you do now that's better? Uh, uh, that is a good question. I see that that I don't know uh, because we don't go to right. our past episodes. <laughs> Yeah, in in some sense, this has been over six years s- such a, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, Tamler and I sometimes refer to it as our own therapy, right? Where where one of the reasons we've been consistent in putting out episodes every other week, or, or at least mostly every other week, is that that it gives us some some respite, some some. I don't know, stimulation that we, we might not get from, from our regular academic life. And in doing that, it's really hard for me to, to say in what way I've changed because when you grow slowly, you know, if we have grown at all, like we, we discussed the other day that it might be scary that we've matured uh, over the course of this podcast because, <laughs> because I don't know, uh, you know, that changing is a weird, scary thing. We're not as repugnant as we used to be, according to some uh, people. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I you know, I, I see a U-shaped curve where you started off real foul and repugnant and and anarchic, and then and then you you had your sort of middle period where you got worried, maybe a bit of pushback, maybe just age got to you, and then all of a sudden, for the last few episodes, you've really been getting back into your own. You know, maybe it's the freedom of of finally old age and. So what I've learned, I feel like, is more less about what we're good at or how we've improved. But like I've learned a lot about the medium 
I feel like, and also about our listeners. Right. And 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 m- most of what I've learned is really positive. Just that there are so many people out there who are just really good people, really smart and really generous. I mean, you know, our supporters are so generous, and the people who interact with us, and even when they disagree with us. I, I don't know, like, it's so rare that we get people trashing us or taking cheap shots at us. It's almost always when they disagree with us in exactly the way you would hope that someone would disagree yeah. with you. And yeah. I just think that's something, and I don't know what it is, but it's something that podcasts allow you to do that it doesn't seem like other media right now is 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 very good at. I let me and I like just to add to that like I absolutely agree that that what we've learned in part because self-reflection is hard is is that and it's in stark contrast to the way that people describe the polarization of uh, of sort of public discourse where not only do people who disagree with us do so respectfully like li- like literally 99% of the time um where they'll engage with us in the way that that you you would want human beings to engage with each other but we've seen i think in both facebook discussion and in in the reddit discussions people who you know we have listeners who go from from like what what somebody might describe as is you know pretty far right mm-hmm. to pretty far left and to see those people sometimes talking to each other in yeah. ways that are actually respectful it actually blows my mind and it gives me, you know, and we've said this before, it actually, it, it actually gives me some hope for, <laughs> for just humanity. Oh and, my God. I regret my question so much. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> You're both doing this. It, you know, it's not humanity, moments. just this current moment that we're in. I think you can get yeah, really yeah, yeah. trapped in how people like throw tantrums on Twitter and think that that represents how people are really interacting. Yeah. And it just isn't like that. I, I think in yeah. some way this speaks it speaks to what your kind of podcast is. There's probably an official taxonomy, but there's some podcasts like This American Life, I don't know you call it a podcast, some some shows you listen to in the car, <laughs> which are all curated and planned out. But what you have is a conversation. And you listen yeah. to two people who are likable and smart and are having a conversation. And you know, it unless there's something really wrong with you. Maybe you'll turn it off if you're bored, but if you listen to it, you'll treat them as people and you'll connect to them as people. It's not some sort of show you're watching that you might have all sorts of views about. You become part of the conversation. And and the podcasts I like most are either conversations like this or interviews, but I like that. I like two or three people talking. Yeah. And if they're, if they're, you know, we have a lot of people who say, I feel like you guys are my friends, you know, even though I don't know you. And I feel that way about, podcasters that I listen to because there's that sort of informal atmosphere that there's a kind of warmth to it something that I think people are drawn to I know I'm drawn to it like if I'm traveling and feeling lonely I'll put on a podcast and then I feel not lonely anymore even though I'm still by myself listening to my phone yeah Um, you know I I um I think that that the medium itself is is really interesting. I mean, it's it's allowed it's allowed for this kind of conversational, lengthy discussion, where, you know, the one thing that I have noticed and I noticed early on is that when say I'm talking to Tamler, you know, we're looking at each other on Skype and it really feels like I'm just talking to Tamler. There is, you know, we've yeah. 
we've all been on radio um, and maybe even on TV. And the the way in which you're aware of the audience really, really influences the kind of thing you say and how you say it. And with this, you know, after like a few minutes, you just forget that yeah. this might be uh, published to other people and you talk in an intimate, you know, intimate, not, you know, not in the way that Tamler would like, but in an intimate fashion, um, forgetting. And, and I think that there is something like, I have this theory that may be complete bullshit, but it is that because podcasts are so often consumed privately, often with headphones on through your phone, that there is something that adds to that feeling of knowing somebody because you're in some ways doing what you would do when you're talking to someone else. Like you are, you, you know, you, yeah. it's pumping right into your ear much the same way that a phone conversation would be pumped into your ear. And I, and I think that's a low level reason why we actually come to really like and feel like we know other podcasts. Because I certainly have that feeling for other podcasters. Yeah. I mean, the two of you are, are almost literally in people's heads. Right. But then there's also this, though. So Ezra Klein is uh, a podcast that I listen to. He's a, that's an interview podcast. And I feel like on his podcast, there is uh, so much really interesting wrestling with the position that he's supposed to believe and really entertaining objections serious objections to his views and he has guests from various sides of the spectrum but even when he has someone on who agrees with him he's still they're both sort of pressing themselves and challenging themselves in a way that i definitely don't see on vox like the 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 website that he started um which it just feels like it's pressing and pounding a specific point of view um, without that same nuance. You know, I, I think it's it's not just that he's in my ear, because I don't particularly like his voice, but it's that <laughs> there is something about this conversation structure that just allows for that in a way that media doesn't seem to right now, or print media, blog, you know, internet print, internet media doesn't seem to. It's like and, the I don't know if it's a payment thing, it's a it's a yeah. money thing, but there's something. And you know, we complain a lot about the the intellectual tone of the times and it's all, you know, hateful and terrible, but but there's something we all have now which we didn't have 10 years ago, which is what you're yeah. talking about, which is at any point you could go and listen to two or three intelligent people talk about interesting things, often from different perspectives. Yeah. And, you know, if you choose your podcast right, it could just be, you know, exhilarating. Yeah. This is, and this yeah. is genuinely new. They didn't, you know, this wasn't always around. You know, the, uh, the other thing that uh, I've really learned about our audience is that I think when Tamler and I started this, um, we thought that our audience would largely be People who were in graduate school in, in one of our fields, like philosophy or psychology, what I've learned over the years is whenever we say something like that, we actually hear from people um, like the size of our audience has grown tremendously such that there is no possible way that they're all graduate students. But we also hear from people from all walks of life who actually have a real deep interest in the topics that we cover, even if they don't have any formal education in this I, that that's that's fun in some ways it's like paul you and i teach intro psych 
when we are able to talk in sort of normal language and get somebody excited about a topic that would not have been otherwise, this is kind of like that writ large where, where we are getting people to think about Gettier cases. Yeah, and, 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 and in that way, what, 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 we're, what, we're, what we're talking about, podcasts and teaching, can blur together. So it always surprises me that of all the things I've done, you know, I, books and articles and so on, it's possible my intro site courses have, ha, course has had the most impact. Um, it came out on YouTube and on the Yale, Open Yale, and a lot of people have watched it, and we're, we're actually making a sequel. This is the first announcement of it. I don't know when it's going to come out because we're going to be finishing touches. But on Coursera, it will be intro psych uh, and, and revised and expanded intro psych. And um, I guess I want to do, you, you know, you both teach. Is, is to some extent the skills you get from from the sort of dialogue in pod in, in this podcast transferable to teaching or is entirely different? That's a good question. I think that when I feel like I'm teaching at my best, it is where I'm show I'm showing positive excitement about a topic and that excitement and enthusiasm is infectious for yeah. the students. And so they become excited about something they wouldn't have otherwise been. And I do think that's our best podcasts is when, like the Borges episodes that we did recently or the, you know, my form of teaching that I love is when I'm like exploring this thing with the students like we're on the same team trying to get to the yeah. bottom of it. And the thing that I'm doing is modeling a way of approaching it, not telling them what to think or even telling them, you know, or even knowing myself what I think about it with Plato or something like that. Like I'm, we're going into this like kind of as a team. And that's how I feel like with these podcasts sometimes, especially my favorite ones is that's the goal there is modeling a way of, of, a, of talking about something, but not modeling a, a, a desk, you know, a, a view or even knowing myself what my view is. It's a nice way to put it. You know, I, I agree with everything Tamler said, said, but, but there's an, an, another sense in which I find it's really different from teaching, which is, the, and maybe this is by dint of teaching intro psych, which is your role is that of the expert and you are trying to make ideas palpable to, to the students by doing it in an entertaining fashion. And I think, but the, the difference between teaching and even I think in a seminar where I have some expertise, even though I'm trying to model thinking for them and, and, and as Tamler says, treat them as, as intellectual equals and struggle through ideas, I'm still the expert. And while I might jokingly say that I'm always the expert on this podcast, the, the real difference is that I think what one of the things I'm most proud of is that Tamler and I approach these topics as real equals and if there's anything we model that I'm I'm very proud of is that of vehement disagreement without uh, bitterness or anger, at least not in the episodes we publish. That that it is fine to <laughs> that it is fine to disagree and argue and even have heated arguments in a way that doesn't take away from the respect we have from each other. And this, you know, this is gets back to the thing that we started with. But I am proud of, of, of that, that aspect. And it feels really different to me. 
Yeah, there's a kind of podcast that I don't like, like the Pod Save America style of podcast, where it is more just like everybody agrees with each other and they're just finding ways to... To, and I, I actually, I'm thinking of it back when it was keeping at 1600. I haven't, I don't think I've listened to a single second of Pod Save America. Maybe they've changed. No, I, I listened to one last week, and they haven't changed. They it's, haven't. It's changed, two. It's, yeah. it's people who have views, which I largely agree with, but cheering each other on, and yeah, and I find I, it I, actually I, impossible to listen to. Yeah, that's how I that's how I that's how I felt about them back when you know like they were doing the Trump Hillary election and. Um, but there is, there's a reason why they're so successful. So like that, I think that does appeal to some people. It's the op, it it doesn't appeal to me at at all. Like that's exactly what I think podcasts are good at avoiding. There's a sweet spot, which I think you guys nicely exemplify where you're not like cheering each other on. You have honest to God disagreements, sometimes serious ones, but you agree on enough to make it a productive conversation. You know, the reality right. is you stick two people who have very different views. Often, <laughs> right. often they're simply impossible, <laughs> right. particularly over, over political or social sexual matters. It's impossible for them to, have, right. to have a good conversation. You need a mediator to make it a public debate yeah. or something. But, you know, you're not going to get, uh, uh, I don't know, Dinesh D'Souza and Sam Harris to have a wonderful podcast together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, so, so you, you, but you need to, there's a certain degree of disagreement, I think, which is necessary to make it interesting. Do you think we agree more now than we used to? It feels like our disagreements are rarer than they used to be. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But I think part of it is that we've settled on knowing, like I've settled on knowing what you, like how, for instance, you view um, the role of, say, intuitions as prim- primary and moral judgments and how you're a pluralist. Like I, I know that that it won't be so fruitful to to get into arguments about those things in the way that we did in earlier episodes, because we've, we kind of know already that I'm right. So art, you know, if we're looking back, that that you have, that you have the intuition that you're right. And therefore, if we're looking that you must be right. If we're looking back, I remember the worst fight you guys got into like that made it onto the podcast in my memory. And (laughs) it was something to do with child raising and sex differences. (laughs) Yeah. And, and I was listening to it and it was like a mummy and daddy are fighting moment. I felt, (laughs) I felt mortified. It was really, it was, it it did veer onto the very unpleasant. I kept waiting for it to be over and you guys were yelling and you know, yeah. And, and that was I, very, it was very yeah, emotional. Curated, right? Or not? Or no, not that one. No, there was no. a different one that we were re- that we just played excerpts of. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that one was a real all-out fight. And and in some ways, I'm glad that that is part of our corpus. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, I don't want to repeat that kind of uh, uh, performance, but I'm glad it's out there because we genuinely were. <laughs> We're like yelling at each other. And it says something about our listeners that some people actually email us that it was so uncomfortable and some people say that they love it. It's their favorite. No, I, <laughs> it's their favorite. I very much think that uncomfortable. By the way, this makes me realize you could take all your 150 episodes, God knows how many hours, put them into an AI and maybe you guys would be superfluous. You could just have uh, have just a big data chunk and then have versions I, of you. <laughs> It's the world's worst Black Mirror the, the, episode. <laughs> it is. It's exactly like a Black Mirror episode. It's exactly like that one. What, what's the name of it? Where, where it's be a right robot back. of a yeah. husband. Yeah, be, be right. Right. Yeah, yeah, where right. where like we have enough data. Now, part of the question is: is the kind of data we've generated is it genuine enough 
that it's getting at our true selves. Yeah, I think it is. That's the thing. I think I think it might be. I think like, it might be. Like there you is, wouldn't there's... get that from my writing, and I really do try to write in my voice, and I try to write as like who I am. But it still is different than like th- I take great comfort in the fact that if I die tomorrow, uh, my family can listen to these podcasts and get a sen- and get a memory of like a legitimate memory. It's like a photo album of who I am. Uh, if they ever want to do that, you know, like I do feel like this is this is just who I am. Like I'm not putting on a pose here for better or for worse. Given the range of things you guys have talked about and the personal nature of some of them. Yeah. Yeah. Those episodes are, are, yeah. are each one of you. And and I don't think that uh, this could have lasted if we were acting. I mean, so in some sense, when we go on on the radio, for instance, you are playing the role of the expert professor on something. And I've never felt like, you know, this goes back to the just I'm having a discussion with Tamler. I really do feel like this is my true self. And if because be, just because I wouldn't have the fucking patience to act this long, yeah. like I, I just it would it would be miserable. Like this is me. This really is me. Like if you meet me, like I will talk like this, you know. <laughs> exactly. um, and, <laughs> yeah, I, I know both of um, you off podcast. You are exactly as you seem. <laughs> For better or worse, but, you know, people listening to this I know met, exactly what you're like. I met a listener in Michigan, and he was a very cool guy. And we just, I don't know, we we had drinks and uh, and had some food, and we were talking. And then, like, like I don't know, it's probably two and a half hours. And at the end, he was like, "I got to tell you, this is so surreal because <laughs> it just feels like I'm on the the pod, <laughs> like because I think it really was like I was just." talking to him the same way I talked to Dave. Paul, do you think that um, that this is... It, ha, have your views changed about, say, the value of doing something like this? Like, now that you've been on a lot of podcasts, a lot of people want to start podcasts. Is this is this a good use of the time as, <laughs> yeah. as a professor? So, so a while ago, uh, Robert Wright sort of gave me and some other Yale professors, uh, Lori Santos and Josh Nob, uh, and a student, then student, right. Jonathan Phillips, a sort of chance to interview whoever he wanted to on his site. And we did that a little oh, while, yeah. and then we, we, we kind of ran out of steam. And I realized now I was probably doing it wrong. I could imagine this being you know, an enormous amount of fun and actually a very valuable use of time. But I wouldn't want, I, I'd want to have something like the two of you have. I would want to have a sort of thing with, with somebody else who would just kind of, where you could just talk about stuff. Um, interviews can be great, but I think this is better. Yeah, Tamler and I sometimes talk about this, and I, I like I try to 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 avoid the word interview um, because I think that it, it it is even though we have guests on the show, and often our guests are people we know, and we know that we can have genuine conversations with them, and they they feel less like interviews to me then they do just we brought on somebody to have a conversation because often we talk about something that may not actually be their work or central to their work and those are the most fun guests to me and this is what you've always been right like that's the thing that yeah paul, so, exactly. paul has always been not an interview even when we're talking about some piece he wrote in the uh, new york or atlantic or whatever it's like you've always been we're having a conversation and other guests haven't been like that, including guests that we thought would be really yeah. good for the podcast. But then all of a sudden it just becomes an interview. 
So, so I have yeah. to, th- I have to tell you a story based on my blogging heads thing, which is that <laughs> I had somebody on who was somebody I liked a lot, respected a lot, and very famous. And I thought we had like an hour slot. So ahead of time, I make up some questions to get us going. So we have a conversation like what you're talking about. But the person I'm talking to has been interviewed thousands of times. And so yeah. I would say, oh, so I have a thought. And then he would very succinctly and very clearly answer it. And then it'd be like, and I moved to my question number two, and he would like answer it like you know like an NPR whatever. And then I was, it was like eight minutes in, I had asked all my questions, and then I'm like I'm there full of flop sweat and anxiety, saying you know so like you know I don't know you got any brothers and sisters what are you like? <laughs> and it was terrible. What's your favorite color? It was terrible. <laughs> and and, I, and so yeah, I, I like the fact that it's not an interview setup. Yeah, like I want to say really quickly, um, part of, uh, you know, Paul's has, as Tamo said, I think are, are, you know, best and perhaps most popular guests. Um, But I learned a lot about teaching, but also about arguing from Paul and Paul's style. It really was Paul's style of of talking and being sort of excited about ideas and not being afraid to disagree and challenge me, including in my teaching style, I TA'd Paul for your intro yeah. course. Um, and maybe your cause is sweet, but is there anybody that influenced your, your style? Yeah. A, a lot of people. Um, I guess three in particular, my undergraduate advisor, John McNamara got me into this business. Right. And, and in some way, I think the sort of style of work I do is influenced by him. Uh, Susan Carey is my main advisor more than anybody influenced how I deal with graduate students. Uh, you know, so, which is more one, one-on-one. I keep a small shop. So she was abusive? She was, yeah, she was abuse, <laughs> abusive, violent, unpredictable. She sexually harassed you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I just, I'm just passing on, passing on um, the cycle of violence and pain. The cycle of violence. Yeah. And, and, then, and then definitely Steve Pinker. Uh, uh, right. A lot of uh, my my writing and my talks and my public presentation is a sort of actually very conscious attempt to do what he does well thanks paul for coming on uh this i couldn't imagine a more festive 150th episode as rambling as a more masturbatory (laughs) (laughs) self-congratulatory no we've been interacting with each other (laughs) tambler that's true Um, (laughs) but thanks for having me on guys this is this is uh I'm, i'm honored to be part of your 150th congratulations Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob.